Hello and welcome to the Engineering Futures podcast. I'm your host, Paul Barker, and I'll be helping you explore the world of manufacturing by introducing you to successful people from across the sector. We'll touch on everything from personal experiences and professional challenges to contemporary issues affecting the sector, careers advice, and practical steps for employers who are looking to attract the top engineering talent. Join us as we get to know the people who have made a difference within the sector. Right, okay, so welcome to Mr. Paul Bullock from 3D360 uh, for the latest episode of Engineering Futures. How are you today, Paul? Thank you, Paul. Uh, I'm good, thank you. Yeah, really, really looking forward to, to having a chat today and, and just sort of talking about the Engineering Futures and, and what inspired me to become an engineer and hopefully sort of imparting some knowledge on on some of your uh to some of your listeners as well yeah so this is our second bash at this isn't it we had a failed attempt on friday because uh, of some technical issues we did. which i seem to be plagued with yes it's uh the scourge of the modern day i think isn't it <laughs> as we change over more and more to digital more and more bandwidth gets consumed, services get more and more strained. So it, it's a blessing and a curse a little bit. It's great <laughs> but um, well, it can be a little bit frustrating yeah, sometimes. It can, but fingers crossed we'll be okay with this. Um, so yeah. we'll get we'll get started. So the kind of... the Well, firstly, Paul, if you just explain kind of who you are and kind of what you what you do. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Paul. So my name's Paul Bullock. I'm one of the co-directors of a company called 3D360. Uh, we're a, a trading provider and an engineering consultancy in fourth industrial revolution technologies in, in robotics, AI, 3D printing, AR, VR, and, and those um, modern, if you like, engineering technologies. Prior to that, um, I served an apprenticeship at Sellafield Limited or, or British Nuclear Fuels, as it was then, perhaps showing my age a little bit. Um, mm. I served a recognised apprenticeship. That gave me a great foundation in engineering. The, the training at Sellafield was really second to none, and, and that really helped me develop and grow into a role in engineering. And then I, I spent the, the 30 years after that consulting uh, in engineering for the likes of Sellafield and Magnox and some of the big blue chip engineering companies, predominantly doing nuclear decommissioning. Um, and I studied sort of mechanical engineering, but there was a good mechatronics grounding in, in what we did. We studied mechanical, electrical, electronic engineering. Um, and that led me, I spent did that for about 30 years, worked on some really great, great projects for the uh, NDA and, and Magnox and Sellafield. And in uh, 2020, I, um, I I took early release, early retirement to go into education, and I started that a week before COVID, so that went a little <laughs> bit uh, a little bit west. But I'll talk about that in in the next question and and sort of how that that brought us to where we are today. That in itself was the step; it was the sort of springboard for 3D 360 to be launched. Um, and we launched that in, in 2020, so we're just, just about three and a half years old now. Yeah. Um, and I've spent the last three years with my business partner and co-director, Lee Fogg, building 3D360, becoming a, a public sector trading yeah. company um, and building up that client base, really. It's, it's something I'm keen to stipulate, I think, sometimes that 
the um, the company is relatively new. It's only three and a half years old, but the heritage is old. We've been consulting in uh, high levels in engineering across automotive um, and nuclear and aerospace for, for 30 odd years each. Um, so we've tied all that together and really sort of brought that into an engineering company for the modern day, I'd like to say, um, embracing modern fourth industrial revolution technologies. Excellent. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm re- looking forward to this one today, Paul, because I think that, you know, in terms of, I like meeting, I think people like, think that engineers are kind of like, you know, stuffy, kind of like sat in a room and, and like boffins and they don't really do much outside of that. And it's it's great when you meet people actually have deviated and have done kind of creative things and and. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to this, but, um, yeah. You know, that's for sure. It's, uh, it has <laughs> been an interesting journey. So we'll, we'll obviously touch on that through the, uh, through the podcast today, but hopefully that again, will show people it's a great point that there isn't one defined route. There isn't one defined stereotype. There isn't one set of, of sort of core KSBs really engineering is a, is a huge topic. Um, and it, it really requires you to have a multitude of skills and experience really to to really become a great engineer. I think um, you've got to push yourself out of the comfort zone and, you know, where we say might be mechanical engineers, it really takes you to have an understanding of electrical, of C&I, of civil engineering and so on to be a really well-rounded engineer. And that's hard, you know, it's it's a lot of work. Yeah, absolutely. Um well, we'll kick off with kind of the, the first question, which is the always always the kind of first question I ask the guests. But, but who or what inspired you to become an engineer? Brilliant, thank you. I, I love this question. Um, it, it's a really easy answer on the face of it because it sticks in my mind really, really firmly how my journey started in engineering. Although there's many different facets that led to it, there was really one pivotal moment. Um, and that was science club at junior school, my old school, Holy Family in the, what would have been the night, well, in the 1970s then, which is kind of showing my age a little bit, but they, they started up a science club and after school club, we'd call it in Richmond nowadays, but it was science club in those days. And, and I, I had an interest in science. I like physics, I like mathematics, um, but I like tinkering with things out of like many people of our age group, you always had a push bike and, and you had to keep that on the road, keep it maintained yourself and, and repaired and, you know, upgraded um, as well. So we were always sort of messing with things in those days. You're always repairing things. We didn't have this this culture we have today where you were throwing things away. So I found that I really sort of enjoyed how things worked and taking them apart and repairing them. But really science club, the enrichment side of it just gave me that that formal grounding, if you like, and showed me there was there was more to that. So, it, you know, as simple as it sounds now, it, it, I can remember it vividly, making structures out of lolly sticks or straws to hold marbles or how big a span um, we, could, we could make. Really sort of started answering those questions or asking those questions, I guess. How does this work? How, how can I manipulate those mechanical properties? How can I make this perform better? And it all came from that one activity. I, I think it was um, it, it was a really defining moment in my career, and that that just enabled me to really kick on. Then I did well at science club, um, but it was kind of fun. It was it was doing something we were, could, didn't do during the normal curriculums. It felt 
a little bit less like formal study and a bit more like R&D almost, really exciting and different. Um, and, and that really sort of focused me then on, you know, as we I was getting a bit older then, sort of looking at, this is something I can do. This is something I really enjoy. It's something I do at home, you know, and, and that ties it all together. So that was the absolute pivotal moment. And it's, it's one of the reasons I'm so such a, uh, an advocate of, of things like uh, enrichment after school clubs and these extracurricular activities that really allow students a different perspective and a different opportunity. Students who might, you know, not have these uh, influences in their home life or or day to day, it it shows them another uh, another path really. And I think the more of them there is, the better. So that that's something I really took out of it. Um, now my dad was an engineer yeah. as well. My dad was an electrical engineer for GEC, so that didn't shape me in the same way. I think I always sort of had at the back of my mind. I didn't know what an engineer was or what an engineer did, but I always saw that and thought that's a way to to provide for your family, to get a house, and and all those things that come with it. So that was always at the back of my mind, um, but I didn't really tie the two and two together. My dad didn't come home and talk about work as he didn't in them days. It was very much that the nine to five, he left all that at work. Right. Um, so I, that didn't influence me other than being that father figure, that, that sort of respected figure thinking, well, that's engineering, that must be a respected job or role um, or what have you. So... It did play a part, albeit a small part. I think that was more just a a fundamental sort of reassurance, really, that that works. That is a, a potential pathway. Yeah. Um, but really, Science Club, um, at Holy Family, RC yeah. Primary School. So a, a big shout out to them if they're listening. They're sure. uh, and just a big thank you. That that really gave me the grounding for a really good career in engineering. So eternally grateful to them. But it's something, like I say, that we we really sort of try and drive home when we do work with educators and schools. I tell that story quite a lot because I think it's important. It's tangible um, when they may feel that, is this really making a difference? Do they, you know, it's hard to see what's going to happen in five, 10, 15, 20 years in the future. But I'm living proof that that, that type of after school club does work. And I'm sure there's many, many others. It'd be interesting to see um through your series of podcasts if any other people if that's been that springboard for them so yeah that's uh in a nutshell sure. so mostly the size club and, and then the sort of reassurance through my family i guess that uh, engineering was a you know a, a respected occupation although I, I didn't actually learn anything about uh engineering from my dad which which feels a bit odd yeah it's um in terms of like those enrichment clubs, you know, there's 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 always a moment where that seed is planted. Um, yes. For everyone, I think for me, it was doing design technology at high school. I don't know how old I would have been, maybe kind of like year nine or something like that. Um, but learning to draw asymmetric, doing yeah. like asymmetric graphics, uh, on a drawing board and I just found our, because I, I found, I've always been creative and I thought this is, I didn't know what it was and I didn't at that time think, oh, you know, this is like, I might become an engineer. I liked the creative elements of kind of technical drawing and being able to get an idea out in a technical way and scaling 
and all that kind of stuff. I, fa- I just found that quite interesting. Um, but with, with you, with your science club, was Certainly. it was there a, a teacher in particular that kind of uh, that, that delivered that that um, yes. that you looked up to, it or was, was it more just the club I itself? It, it was the club, basically, and the, I, I've been racking my brains trying to think of that teacher's name, um, and I can, which is a bit disappointing, so I, I will have to ask the school. Um, but like I say, this is the 1970s, you know, we're going back a bit. For me, it would have been uh, about year seven. We did that, year seven, year eight. And it, it's interesting you, you mention about technical drawing and that being a, a springboard. It wasn't what inspired me to become an engineer, but I... I do talk about that in the next sort of question. That was the thing that when I started engineering that I really, really enjoyed. I was always sketching something as a kid. I really liked, I was quite creative. I always had a pen and pencil to hand, uh, paper and pencil to hand. And I loved perspective. I loved sort of doing isometric drawings and drawings to perspective. And I found that when I started my life as a, as a draft person, uh, when I finished my apprenticeship, I really enjoyed that, and that that really, I think, kicked me on. I'd, I'd sort of found my place there, I think, um, when I went into the drawing office. It really all clicked a little bit, and I found a way to express that, to to really do that diligence and, and sort of create those manufacturing drawings or engineering drawings of assemblies and layouts. Um, I loved that part of it. I think that was, that was brilliant. And again, at an age before CAD, you know, we, we take yeah. it for granted now that CAD's the sort of accepted uh, technology. But, you know, a lot of people our age did start work on a drawing board. It did start with D&T and, and um, you know, drawing pencils and the yeah. likes. It, you know, and in some cases, parchment, you know, some really old sort of uh, mediums to draw on. It was, it was um, I, I really enjoyed that part of it. I loved uh drafting and, and my AO drawing board and I know when we when we switched over to CAD um fully if you like at Sellerfield we they got rid of all the drawing boards and I kept mine I asked if I could buy it and I was able to to take that home and use it as a uh, in the garage and what have you and I love that and I still do now today I still love a bit of technical drawing yeah I'm the same I, I, I mean when I, I mean going slightly off tangent here but when I was um working at, at college um, a few years ago we we needed someone to deliver um pattern development to do pattern development with some of the welding fab apprentices and like really? i said right i'll do it but i had to learn how to do it myself because i didn't have a clue how to do pattern development but oh my god yeah. it was like i loved it you <laughs> know like going back to those kind of like first principles of drawing and 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 thinking about it and and, and getting that pattern development all done yeah it, you know like square to rounds and stuff like yeah, that how you, how you would draw in, that envisaging um, that in your mind's eye before you start yeah. you know you now in a little bit with with modern cab you can just get cracking you know back in in our day when we started on the drawing board you really needed to know where that drawing was ending before you started it because if, if you got to a point where you were out of space, additional views, the scale wasn't right for the border. You were starting it again, you know. It wasn't yeah, yeah. it wasn't kind of like today where we, we just take that card, it's always one-to-one, and, and there you go. You can't really go wrong in that respect. But you really had to plan that out, and you really had to sort of, um, like I say, you know, understand in your mind's eye how that was going to go together before you'd, before you'd even put your first line in, really. So 
it took a lot of thinking about and a lot of logical thinking, all those sort of traits that really um, go together to perhaps make engineers, those, those things that people have, that diligence, the attention to detail, um, they all really come together in that that sort of um, envisaging models in your mind and how that goes together and how angle projection uh, works on that and where you need to be cutting your views and, and so you can see really what's going on in that drawing there was a lot to it it was it was quite a skill and and i love that i love that the neatness the order the you know that you could create some really beautiful drawings in in the day when it's by hand um but yeah really really interesting stuff that i'll i'll talk about that in the next uh section yeah. if it, it grows yes so you've you've led you know, what I would consider to be, you've definitely a very interesting career, but, um, you know, you've done other things as well, um, which, you know, with the work in Cambodia that you did, but, you yeah. know, talk, talk me through some of the defining moments that kind of, that have led you to this point. Blimey, yeah. So I'll, I'll try and keep on track. I'll try and keep it chronological. Um, but there's just been so many, you know, I, I have had quite a varied career. Um, so since starting doing my apprenticeship at Sellafield, I'd say that was fairly straightforward. It, it was a mechatronics apprenticeship before that existed. So we did predominantly mechanical or electrical. We had to study, uh, study the other disciplines. So it'd give you a really good grounding. So you understand the electrical, you understand the electronic engineering. Even civils, one of my first jobs um, at Sellafield when I was in the rig halls was a civils job um, and I was I was a mechanical engineer so they wanted you to have that that really good understanding of everything as a system and I think that that was massively important um, in showing me the crossovers between the different disciplines and that served me really well as uh, in later career as I as I was managing work packages um, and as the mechanical we would manage the multidiscipline work packages so I'd be responsible for the for the delivery and technical compliance of it all um, and that then we'd have our individual, um, you know, subsets under that, the electrical teams, the civils teams, the Bennett teams and so on. But it, it gave me a really good understanding of, of engineering as a whole. And I think that that was really important. Um, and it's for a lot of engineers, I think, where we we touched on it at the beginning. And I know Paul Bell touched on it last week, the vastness of engineering and, and you know, how that can perhaps be breed to... Um, imposter syndrome and, and thinking I don't quite understand you know all of this and it, it's such a huge topic that I'm sure no one does understand all of it it's, it's good to understand um sometimes that that it is massive and that there's that got to be that continued growth and development so my apprenticeship at Sellafield was was the key defining one really that's there's no two ways about that that got me um education and it, it got me sort of vocational skills as well it told me how to be in work and and do all those soft skills um or gain all those soft soft skills that we talk about are sometimes missing in the modern day i think that hybrid of, of going to college and working at the same time and learning on the job skills for me it was the perfect perfect mix not for everyone i'm sure but for me i needed that that blend of theory and practical to really keep me interested i, I did like the theory to be fair, but I was always kind of in my early career, I loved my engineering development and as a youngster was practical and hands-on. So that really just helped me enable under helped me 
to enable to understand it, helped enable me to understand it, uh, seeing that practical and marrying that up with the theory then. Um, so that was hugely important. Coming through my early career, I think that, that was a massively important time as well. Um, I had a really great time in my early career. I had some, some unbelievable mentors, which we'll touch on more in the next section. But the Sellafield had this sort of process, I'm sure many do, where as you came through your engineering uh, apprenticeship, the years above you would be your mentors as well as then some of the more senior staff. So you're always, always getting that constant sort of education, that constant update, that constant guidance. And that worked brilliantly. That had some some people really stick in my mind. Ray Pashley, Tony Fifield, Dave Ashton and Ian Grady were my early careers mentors. And they, they were brilliant engineers in their own right, but they were really excellent mentors. And they really helped me find my place in engineering, helped me find my feet, really helped me develop and grow. I think that was hugely important that um, it, it was a nice, safe and secure environment I could grow in. And and that was a really, we worked together collectively for many, many years, about, probably about a decade and a half after that. And they were hugely, hugely important and influential. And I, I actually class that as a defining moment, having those good mentors and guidance in my early career which what really enabled me to be the engineer I am today. So a big thank you to uh, Ray, Tony and Dave and Ian and, and many others, if you're listening. Um, so that was hugely influential. Um, the next key point, I think this is, again, it's all interlinked. The next key point that I think really, really sort of boosted my career was care and maintenance on Sellafield. Um, in the sort of, late 90s, early noughties, Selfie was under a care and maintenance regime. And, and historically, the jobs we work on are quite large. You know, we, there's people I did my apprenticeship with who were still on the same job as when they were an apprentice and, and will retire on that job. And great, that means they can be really good experts in, in one thing or another. But the trade-off then is you don't get that, that broad brush, that sort of overarching view of how of how everything interlinked as a process system and care and maintenance allowed me that I worked on all plants, I worked on all jobs, I worked on um, different variety of things, whether that was installation, commissioning, whether it was mechanical, whether it was uh, piping or vessels, I managed to get this really good grounding across the whole uh, decommissioning ecosystem and, and I rate that as a really formative um several years actually but a really formative time where i joined a lot of the dots so I, I could understand a lot of what was going on but it really helped me develop my process awareness um as well so touching on chemical engineering as well there but it really helped me understand it that that was a brilliant time just because of how varied that was and i think that's it's really important for a lot of the listeners or young engineers to do a, a variety of work to see different types of um, jobs as well because that all builds your your knowledge um, as well so the sort of guidance and advice there to the to the younger engineers is if you get an opportunity it doesn't matter whether it's linked to what you're doing it doesn't matter whether it's not whether you can see that link just volunteer be willing that that's the key takeaway i was always willing to um to get stuck in and do do work that was out of my comfort zone. Yeah. 
And I think that that Definitely. all the way through my career has been really sort of uh, defining in that mindset yeah. is really what's helped me grow into the engineer I am today. Um, so that was obviously really hugely defining. And then as, as I kind of developed and grew in that, I, I held sort of senior and lead positions for engineering then for a long time. Um, and then what, what really changed, I think, there was as I, as I got further up the food chain and as I'd spent longer and longer there, I started realising that the for me i was i was really enjoying sort of developing the early careers and bringing the graduates through and even the older engineers doing that continued development of them through management man through my management roles um really got me thinking about being an educator that that's what really sort of set the scene <laughs> i found that i was really enjoying that development like i say as as when i was coming through the engineers that had guided me um, and help me and, and make me the engineer I am. I really sort of fell into that role, and I found that was that, that was where I wanted to be. Yeah. Um, so I put <laughs> I put uh, things in place, and like I said, I sort of took early release and, and went to be an educator a week before COVID. So that was hugely defining. I mean, that that's yeah, that... totally changed uh, what we're doing now. It's in fact the, the whole company was born out of that. So at the time, 3D3, 3D360 didn't exist. I went to manage the Fab Lab at Warrington, where I'd been a, a STEM ambassador and, and worked with them for many moons. And um, that was where I felt I was going to sort of ease out the last sort of 10 years or so of my career. Uh, and COVID happened and, and just everything changed. And, and that's hugely defining. So they obviously shut the, um, the Fab Lab and the school for quite a long time and what we realized at the time the um the 3d printed face masks and the vent valves um were coming out and we'd seen then little sort of snippets of of um, the benefits we can get now from things like additive you know supply chain resilience reshoring um they really came into play as 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 uh, covid kicked off and what i did i kept the fab lab open so they were able to shut the school but I, I, the Fab Lab was my domain and I was able to keep that open because it was just me. So although I couldn't have um, the community in or clients, what I was able to do was get all the printers from the local schools and set up a manufacturing uh, lab or a, a print farm, as it's called, multiple printers together to try and meet the sort of region's need, producing uh, ventilator valves um, and the face masks. And, and what became clear straight away. So I, I got a lot of printers at that point from a lot of the local schools and very, very few of them had been used. The first yeah. thing I had to do was sort of dust them off. That was a real shock. And then when I'd speak to the educators and, and sort of raised to come and pick up their printers and build build the farm, the capability, um, it became really clear when I spoke to them that maybe they had a, a limited teaching resource, there might have been one yeah. person who knew how to use it yeah. and, and they might have left or during COVID things had happened. Um, and in a lot of cases, they just weren't, they weren't using those printers. So they had the hardware, but they didn't yeah. have the skills to know how to use them. And, and one school we were with, their um, head, I guess, of advanced manufacturing is a geography teacher because he has a 3D printer and, and was the one in the school who knew how to use it. Oh. So that that really struck a chord with me, 
<laughs> and that was really the moment so 3D 360 was born really as an entity. I realized that the educators needed a degree of educating. I realized that there was a, a big skills gap around fourth industrial revolution technologies. Again, 3D printing, robotics, all these other all these other technologies. When I was speaking to the educators, they weren't there. And that forced me to look yeah. at the curriculums, key stage three, key stage four, and, and see where those gaps were yeah. and how yeah. we could plug those. And, and I realized that the key the key to making this happen was educating the educators in a sort of train the trainer type of style. So 3D 360 was born and, and that started off as a proposal yeah. to educate educators. That, that's exactly where it came from. And that's since grown and, and we've grown that. It's not just educators now, it's companies, it's individuals that we have the funding for. Um, and that's grown massively just into, you know, providing that service across industry, across education. And, and it's been great. It's been absolutely really rewarding and humbling being able to sort of um, set up a system that brings brings not only the free hardware, the free 3D printers to, to schools, the 3D 360 donate, but then to also bring the free skills to schools that we get the budget for from Central Gov to incentivize that. And it, it's been a real privilege to be able to do that. Um, and I, we will just touch on the Earthship, the Cambodia one, I think. It, <laughs> it is an interesting one. It, it kind of sums me up a little bit, um, a little bit this. I've taken a little career break and um, was motorbiking across Asia and, and that was sort of, I do like travel. That is one of my hobbies. That was the main reason I uh, I stayed as a contractor for so long was because I had that ability then to take more extended periods between contracts and, and get some traveling, some diving or scuba diving or, or oh. motorcycling. And um, I'd spent some time uh, motorcycling around the temples of Angkor. So in, in Cambodia, people are probably familiar with Angkor Wat. They're quite iconic. Uh, huge temple there but that's just one of 72 temples spread over a huge area in Cambodia and, and I'd set up a trip where um, <clears throat> I was buying a motorbike and then riding around these temples and, and looking at them and these these are vast, bear in mind the Angkor Wat I think is 5 kilometers around the uh, perimeter it's a huge building made of about 1100 years ago, handcrafted by people and and I found that fascinating. It's the same when you go to the pyramids. These things are they're just fascinating that that we were able to make them before we had all the technologies we have today, before we had all the tools. You know, I, I can guarantee you they didn't have the theodolite around that that we as we know it. But they have these methods and, and methodologies of creating these buildings that, that literally last millennia. So is there some learning we can do? Um, but I find that fascinating, that history. And while I was there, I'd, I'd sort of been learning the language because I was going to some remote places and I needed a, to understand that. And in one of the remote places, I, I met up with a lady um, who, who had a proposal to build an earth ship, which for the um, for your listeners, okay. if anyone's not familiar with that, it's a passively designed carbon neutral okay. dwelling built from upcycled or repurposed materials. So... Also, that's a bit of a mouthful, but essentially it's a sustainable building. Um, so I helped design that and I was the, the chief engineer on it. And we built our Earthship, uh, it took us about five months. But it's a real thing of engineering beauty and a real thing of, of physics beauty. 
essentially it just follows all the principles uh, or the first principles of physics that we we used to use. We've used them for millennia and then when the Industrial Revolution really took hold, we kind of forgot a lot of these principles like solar chimneys and convection and thermal mass that we've been yeah. using for so long. Yeah. Um, and even the key the key to that, so that airship, yeah. um, it really is beautiful. I'll, I'll send a picture through to you just so you can visualize it. Um, but the key to it is it uses no power and that's it. it it's absolutely self-sustainable in its own right. And the key to that is just designing it in the right orientation. So we, we put houses in nice, square, uniform, parallel and symmetrical roads. It's very much, the UK roads are very much like that and cities and development. But really just being able to orientate that building in the right orientation with the sun path is the key to actually not needing to then use power to heat it or not needing to use power to cool it. So it, it was a really, really beautiful thing um and it's now become a bit of a showcase so it's that building although it's built from tires of dirt and basically bottles that they don't recycle um glass bottles or tires car tires in cambodia so we use them they were the waste that we had available we packed about a quarter of a ton of earth into each tire and that created a really big thermal mass behind that we built that into about 230 tons of earth so that and orientated it with the sun and the uh, with the sun path, yeah. certainly the winter sun path. So that then comes through the bottles, which is the walls, changes the white light, light wavelengths, and heats the thermal mass behind it. And then obviously we put in composting toilets, dug a well, made a farm around it, and it, it's actually become a sustainable education centre now as well, mm. which I'm really mm. proud of. And um, I, I still keep in touch with the school. Um, well, it's called the Free Education Centre. I still keep in touch with them, and at the moment we're just devising our plan for me to teach them 3D printing, and certainly to teach them how to upcycle their uh, waste uh, materials right. into a material that they can then use to to 3D print with. And when I get a minute, we're going to go and 3D print another sustainable education centre there to sort of support the Earthship. But uh, that's quite varied. But again, really good knowledge and understanding, really, to understand these first principles of HVAC um and these first principles of physics and engineering um are just hugely important again it just pulls together more pieces of that jigsaw of that engineering jigsaw so anything that's a little bit different is obviously always a good opportunity to learn but yeah thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed that and i'm, I'm really looking forward to to carrying on that education um but yeah pretty quite varied i must admit I've been a kind of lead engineer um, for a lot of years, probably for about yeah. 25 years. And although that didn't really define uh, my engineering career, it it did change it. And I think that's important. We'll touch on that in the next question, but how that transitioned. And again, I know Paul Paul Bell spoke about it last week and, and gave a good story about uh, when it, you know having dinner with the team. And, and not having dinner with the team, and that was really defining um, on the on the big scale of things. But it doesn't break down to one single moment or another. So it just changed things. That I think um, that one. Yeah. So I mean, really interesting. A few interesting things that you've said there. Um, you know, when you talk about, if you take it back to when you first started about 
you know, being able to, those 3D printers that come back from schools that are kind of dusty and have never been used. And I think that that's, that's not a reflection on the school. I think that's just sometimes they don't have that skill set to be able to do it. But I think that when you engage with, with secondary schools, you know, and these are, these are, these are people that are working very, very hard under difficult circumstances to oh, get yeah. these kids through their main qualification. But when you, you think of these things that are happening because you might have had that teacher at school that did it, it's not the case out there in schools, is it? You've, you've got yeah. sometimes, you'd like to say you don't, you know, to, as an engineer, because I actually looked at this, I once looked at trying to go into secondary school, um, into secondary education. I couldn't get in. So I was yeah. thinking that they'd like they'd be like, oh my God, you know, can you start tomorrow? Because yeah. I had a teaching qualification. I was an engineer. I, I, I was a time served engineer. Um, I taught on, on programs within further education, but I couldn't get in because I didn't have like a, a little part of the PGC that you need. Yeah. I think you Q, QTLS or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so how you get people with those skill sets into secondary education, it's more or less impossible unless you've gone straight down that PGCE route um, yeah. that gets you in. But um, yeah, I mean, how do you think that, because how do we nurture a pipeline of engineers, especially when you're talking about additive, that's going to be so kind of, and we can talk about that a little bit later on in terms of how the technology is advancing and stuff, but we need young people to be coming through. Like young people are savvy on, on smartphones and yeah. things like that. Well, they need to be savvy on, on things like additive manufacturing. So how do you, how do we overcome that? They do. And it's a really good point you make there. You know, you almost think, well, that's a really transferable skill I have with the teaching qualifications as well, that that should be quite an easy transition. And, and it's kind of clearly wasn't, or, you know, at the, at the time. And I think that's important. We do need that, that industry experience uh, as well. And that employer experience and, I think it's really difficult for the teachers. There's no disrespect to them. Like you said, it, it's probably the, it's a really difficult job. Um, and I think what it is, it's, I don't, what, what people probably don't see is that lag of the curriculums behind where they are. So if someone's, let someone say someone's a newly qualified teacher today, even the lag in the curriculums mean that additive isn't in there, that robotics isn't in there. Um, and those more modern technologies. And they'll take a few years. That that might be five, six, seven years before that's in the curriculum. Then the teacher has to study that, become qualified, that's... do the PC, PGCE. Realistically, that's probably a 10-year lag. And and some of the curriculums um, were behind. I know we've been reviewing some of the ones for Pearsons. And there is that lag. You can see it. Um, and I think that's it is difficult for schools. It is difficult for teachers. And I think this is where... Um, CPD is really important. I know we, as, as registered engineers, we, we do it on, as a day job um, activity. And I think sometimes with teachers, I think that's where we can really plug those gaps and get those little wins doing CPD in, in a specific skill that they can then bring back to the school. And, and we do it successfully in industry, these rapid upskill industry and employers um, tell us that's what they want. We do a lot of engagement. We did a lot of engagement with the high value manufacturing catapult in, in developing a lot of our curriculums. Um, and, and that's the key takeaway, I guess, really, is employers are really receptive to, to upskill training and CPD, but it needs to be quick. It needs to be something where they can be in and out. Schools, especially getting time off 
is, is really difficult for teachers um, and, and expensive. They need to be replaced as well. So um, it's a bit limited, but it's been specific about picking that, them upskill activities then and um, and getting the best out of them. And, and to be fair, the I think we've trained yeah. about, they'll be getting on for about 300 educators under our funded programs. And they've just all been really receptive to this, that opportunity to do CPD, the opportunity to to sort of um, plug a couple of gaps where the, whilst the curriculums catch up, is um, has, has been really well received. Um, and then we've been doing backfilling, if you like, um, updating the curriculum. So that's something we've been doing at level four and level five to try and tie this together. And, and what we've found when we talk about enrichment um, at the beginning, what we found is where where skills now where schools now have this equipment and the teachers have the skills, they're bringing those those topics into the key stage three and key stage four curriculums because it, they're written that they can, and it gives them flexibility based on, if you like, what what level of equipment they might have, whether that's resistive <laughs> materials, a couple of hacksaws and a file, or whether it's digital manufacturing equipment, there's quite a bit of flexibility in there for the schools, which which is obviously good. It levels it up a little bit. Um, but we found that, you know, they've been really receptive to that opportunity to upskill. And, and most of the schools we've trained have brought in some sort of 3D printer club, enrichment club after school activity. Um, and it, it's really encouraging that. And then when I look at it today, and I think this will be what, some of our next generation yeah. um, and workforce of tomorrow will be doing additive or going into engineering because they've, they've had access to this equipment and these skills. So I'm, I'm really proud of that, um, but it's hugely important as well. So rapid upskill, I think that's no. that's the key for teachers uh, and for schools. And, and that's where we need to kind of get education mm -hmm. and employers yeah. talking a bit more. I know I've, I've made a few notes on that further down and, and the, um the collaboration and connections really between employers and industry that historically haven't been that strong um but i'm I'm seeing really encouraging work around it now where there is a driver um to tie those two together and there is a driver for those different stakeholders to um to work together and, and really output the best curriculums for the the next generation and and the workforce of tomorrow mm. yeah and then I suppose this this kind of then leads on to if we talk about additive manufacturing. Yeah. Um how do you see the technology? Because I've seen so I've been over to kind of I'm thinking like most people think 3D printing and you imagine like a little 3D printer, you know, producing yeah. a cube or whatever. But you know, the technology is so kind of advanced now. Um yes. That it's almost kind of mind blowing when you when when you see it. Um, but how do you see it evolving? But but then as well, what are the obstacles to actually getting this rolled out? Because where, where you've got kind of like SMEs, yeah. And I see it because I go into some SMEs and it's like it's like going back to the seventies. You know, people think that like engineering manufacturing companies are really at the cutting edge of of technology. That's often not the case. You know, know. and it, what what do how do you see this technology being kind of you know rolled out amongst these companies and, and having the confidence to embrace it? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I mean, I, I think the the sort of 
<laughs> the first answer to that is it's so vast and varied. When we talk about additive, it's similar to engineering. It's, it's a huge topic and, and our preconceptions of additive or 3D printing are very much like you say, the desktop, the, yeah. the desktop plastic polymer printing cubes. That's kind of what you see in your mind's eye when uh, when someone mentions 3D printing. But it's such a vast um, topic and, and there's the seven different main types of additive yeah. and then the subsets within that. Yeah. Um, but what people generally don't see is, is the same technology can produce multiple things so we when, when we train in it we keep metrics on on people's job roles what they come to us uh from and, and how they're going to buy it and it surprises us even sometimes the diversity of that we have therapists who use it as a rehabilitation tool we have people who use it yes as a manufacturing tool as, as you would expect um, but we have people who use them as educational aids good rewards aids we have people who use them as a hybrid to support maybe art sculpture yeah. Um, it, it's vast and yeah. I think it's, um, there's two, there's a few things with additive, I think that we need to sort of understand to be able to understand it. And one is it's usually different from anything we've known. It changes the paradigm, it changes the way we have to design, it changes the way we manufacture and assemble, not least because we can manufacture moving parts. We can, all of a sudden we can manufacture the unmanufacturable. And that, that's a real game changer. So where we were um, constrained, if you like, by, by manufacture and assembly, we're not anymore. We can make anything. And that, that's difficult exactly. to get your head around in, in the first place. Um, the fact that it can make moving parts, I usually, I always carry a lot of props, which I've got some no. here, but moving parts and multi-part assemblies, no. um, again, sort of changes the way you need to think about additive. You know, we're... we're trained in traditional engineering designed for manufacturing assembly but what happens if you don't need to assemble what happens if you can just make everything in one piece how does that change it and and that's what you can do with additive and we we do successfully you know and here's one example but it's a great one this chain mail um chain mail is quite labor intensive to produce we just make it as one piece now on using additive but um and we can do this with a multitude of things, even internal sections, racket, uh, ratchets, yeah. internal galleries. We can make things that were never possible to make before. And that, that's opening up new avenues around cooling, heat exchange, all sorts, and even reliability, not having that tolerance build up from being able to create multi-part assemblies in one, in one piece. Just means we're getting more reliability and less fatigue. So it does change that mindset. Um, I think one of the, the big challenge at the moment, which is, is being addressed, I guess, um, although I've never quite understood this, the big challenge is always about um, certification, standardization, compliance. How do we know repeatedly that part that comes off is going to be the same each time? And I, I find that a bit of a... I don't think it's that valid a challenge. As someone who's been underpinning things from first principles most of his career i don't see it being any different if we did have bespoke one-offs we'd just test them and we can get a feel for that material so i think the challenges around standardization have come in i've seen astm um issuing new specs around it even there was a new spec around concrete 3d printing um which ties in if you like concrete 3d printing and testing performance for traditional 
um, civils development. And that's really exciting. I think that's a, a, a brilliant sort of piece of uh, literature. And that, again, just ties that up in, in, you know, 3D printing. I think a lot of people preconceive this desktop thing, but just down the road from us in Accrington, they've given planning permission to 3D print a whole village, 46 houses using extruded concrete. Um, and I did have a chat with them uh, the other day. It's, it's really interesting how they've underpinned that and, and they've got that to code. That is to the UK building regs. Yeah. So where we look at these things and see That's the great. challenge, I don't think it is. I, I genuinely think the likes of uh, in-process monitoring and, and performance monitoring um, and mechanical testing and standardization just allows us to to get there quicker. But it does need more work on that side of it. I think that's just been a, a little bit slower <clears throat> coming to the party. Um, but the reasons we should do this, why should we... You know, why should we sort of uh, change what we know? Why should we go away from something that we know it might bring risk? We know what we know. There's no risk in that. So why would we change? And I think the the sort of outputs of, of additive are what's really driving that change. Some of the advances in materials, um, there's a material on the curve system on the Formula One. Um, it's a stratasys material. They, they 3D print it. It's a liquid polymer resin can make absolutely incredible accuracy parts with that. We can make incredible detail and unmanufacturable parts, unmanufacturable parts. And that material is about 10,200 uh, 10, megapascals of tensile strength, 21, 22 times stronger than steel. It weighs nothing. It's a polymer and it can be manufactured in any way. And, and these sort of performance, increases in performance, increases in mechanical properties are good reasons we should look at this. The material savings, I think, is... It's hugely important. I think it's easy to to overlook. We call additive manufacturing because of the, the way the process works. It adds material instead of taking it away. And we never really used to call traditional manufacturing subtractive. But that is huge. And, and just saving that material, I'll bring out another example. Saving that material, this is a... This is a a, a, a ratchet spanner off the International Space Station designed by NASA. But you can see this internal um, this internal uh, material isn't solid. It's just a series of meshes. It's like a biomimicry. Now, that actually uses about 10, 15% of the materials if it's solid. And then I'm also not machining material away. There's zero waste with that. So I'm literally mm. just material where I need it. On average, that's usually 5-10% of the actual material use. And this is biomimicry. So we use this lattice structure um, to really distribute the loads and, and for the load path. And that's how your bones work. Your bones are 3-5% to 5 density, but incredibly strong. And we use that in additive. So say for this spanner, this is 3D printed. Um, the original was 3D printed on the International Space Station. Enabled NASA to email that file instead of using traditional logistics. So the, mm -hmm. the carbon savings there were huge. Then we're not subtractively machining the material, uh, taking material away. Again, huge. Then we're lightweighting and using much less material internally. Again, it's huge. We need less duty, less work, less energy for that. If it's a mechanical component, maybe off an airplane or a car. Um, and then steel production is massively energy intensive. I think if steel production was a country in CO2 emissions, 
it'd be the third highest CO2 emitter on the planet. So if we can use 5 10% yeah. of the material for everything we do, save all those logistics okay. and all the carbon uptake from that, then yeah. yes, we've got to look at it. You know, 3D printing a house <laughs> takes about four days, uses a lot less material, there's less welfare requirements, there's only about four people needed to make that structure, that superstructure. So it's yeah. the drivers for additive. If we, you know, that's what's really driving this. The advancing materials, I think, is, is incredible. Those ceramic polymers and some of the materials we're seeing today that do perform the same as, as metal or can perform better than traditional metals and steels is really changing things. And that's usually important. So the incentive is there, basically. Underpin, underpinning why we do it is there. But I think we just need a concerted effort, effort around standardising it all um and the underpinning of it and and we'll be okay we'll be there so but it, it is going to change the way we manufacture and that that's a given and in reality i think it, it ends up being a hybrid method um where we can create near net shapes using metal additive um, and then just face them say where we need geometrical tolerance in and really fine sort of finishes um and getting the best of both worlds then we're getting that that lightweight in, we're using less material and we're wasting much less if it comes to sort of fine machining. So I see it being a hybrid process, but additive will change the way we manufacture and it will change engineering. And that's something that's... I've been acutely aware of. There's sort of about 15 years I've been in additive. And, and what first struck me when I started doing it was this is a game changer. I can't believe what this can do. Um, and that's what we find when people start using additive, it's easy to, to sort of say it, you know, you can manufacture anything, but you can, and that's, mm -hmm. that's an absolute game changer and, and engineers can see that as a tool and really exploit it as, as engineers do. So I suppose with that then, because, and again, this is another, uh, another thing with en engineers, people think that sometimes technology can scare, can scare people, can't it? And I think with yeah. this. So when you talked about that that lagging education, you know, and is there potentially a lag from rolling this out? Because this isn't new technology, is it? I know people talk of it, talk about it as though it is, but it's it's been it's been around for quite a while. Um, yeah, absolutely. And you know, what's what do you see the kind of like the barriers being for wider rollout? You know, absolutely. It's the skills. It's understanding it as a process. Um, like you say, this isn't. It's not new. You know, it works on a language from the nineteen forties, G code, which is language of cnc um cnc uh, machines that's not new i, I remember when when i studied um when i was at warrington tech they had a 3d printer there and that was in the in the sort of 80s and i remember that and, and looking at it and at the same time i was putting ticker tape into my machine into my cnc machine um but it's not new at all i think what's what's really new is the advancement in materials and, and the breadth of what we yeah. can print, concrete printing and the like. So it's materials that's really changed it. But I think what's, mm. what's um, if you like, stopping it becoming a mainstream technology today is skills. That That's the key takeaway. And I, I know a lot of my engineering teams don't and, and wouldn't historically have the capability to be able to design for additive. It is a different process. Mm -hmm. Whereas people are used to designing for, you know, milling, turning, all those traditional processes. They're not used to designing for additive, and that's 
yeah. that's the the key barrier really is that that lack of understanding on how we can mm-hmm. use it what you know the best properties we can take from that and where it can really benefit us people don't understand engineers because they're not trained in that and and that's the gap really if i was to do a gap analysis today it's around skills and 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 we've obviously been on this mission to try and try and bring these skills into education try and really bring these skills to employers and, and into engineering um and that's the key that that's that's what's missing if you like if you can use this tool and and you understand it all of a sudden you can you can create anything um so it really is training i think that's the only thing and when when people understand what you can do with it then they can start bringing it into the businesses and um we've seen a massive progression in manchester and, and the northwest from that really since we've been doing our funded training that's enabled people to explore these these technologies at no risk it's been able them to to sort of um, get funded and subsidize training to upskill their staff and do cpd then they're bringing it back in house and really exploring the the best of it and what it can bring and and people who are using it and, and exploring it are really doing some amazing things and that's the key really it's just getting started and, and that's where we come in we can you know, provide you with a free printer and provide you with the, the funded training just to enable you to start looking at, can I bring this into my capabilities? What can it do? And there's still an education piece there. I think, you know, until this is mainstream in, in schools and colleges and, and FE and HE, HE and FE, um, and subsequently employers, then I think we're always going to be sort of, um, we're always going to be having this battle really of, of here's what it can do. Do we have the right people who understand it? So it's it's a it's a sea change from what we know. Basically, you know, this is a whole new way of engineering, and I think it's it's easy to underestimate that if you don't know additive and you're not familiar with it. I think it's easy to underestimate just the impact this is going to have and, and just how powerful it is as a as a manufacturing technology. So if anyone's been listening to this today, Paul, and they want to hear more about additive manufacturing, about training support, or just have questions to ask, what's the what's the best thing for them to do to get in touch with you? Yeah, so thank you for that. I mean, we, we're always uh, happy to speak to people if, if they're not sure whether they can implement it into the business um, or whether it's even going to work for them. You know, we use a phrase, just because you can 3D print something doesn't mean you should. Sometimes <laughs> it's not the best manufacturing technology. Um, and we're here to guide people on that and help them implement um, industry 4.0 technologies into their business. So they can contact us, obviously. Um, they can give us a call and just ask to speak to us. You can email in. Um, and I'm, I'm sure we'll we post the... Uh, the, the addresses, I, I guess, and the phone number in the, the link to this. So yeah. I won't talk through them, but um, we're more than happy to have a discussion. And certainly for businesses, we we do go to a lot of employers and do trading audits and technology audits where we can look at that, those uh, manufacturing processes and sort of say, can this be improved by additive? What skills do you need then to be able to optimize um, your use of this technology or get the best from this technology? So we... We support employers in that, and we're able to provide funded training or subsidised training. We we still maintain our free three D printers for all. So I, th- I think we've given away 
we've given away about 1200 1250 3d printers to schools and businesses in the in the northwest of england that's a great way to just see if this can work for your business at again low risk low cost um but we also do a service a, a free service where we're happy to come in and look at your processes we're happy to have a discussion and we're happy to do a skills audit and see what what employers need to to implement this technology and even just see if it's the right technology for the business or not in the first place. Um, but we're here to hold hold employers' hands. And I think what works really well on that is we're not just here at the front end, we're here at the back end. Anyone who's been on our training uh, courses, we offer ongoing free help desk on that, free technical support. Um, and that that's hugely valuable for companies. You know, it means you, you might be cracking on doing great and then six months down the line you, you reach a roadblock you're not sure what the answer is we're here you know and that that's a free service we offer because we want really we want the our learners to have the best possible yeah. chance of success so we're there for ongoing support and i think that that really ties it all together as well um, but yeah contact any member of the team and, uh, and just have a chat with us and, and we'll happily um, have a look at if it works for the business and, and what skills might be needed and, and what equipment might be needed for that. Okay, well, yeah, sounds like an absolute no-brainer to me. But, um, but Paul, we've come to the end of our time now. I had a few Thanks. more questions I would have liked to have asked, but we've, it's been so riveting and I think we've been able to go into some really good detail there. Um, so thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. We can always set it up for a part two. I think I've just set it up for the sequel. <laughs> like any good franchise but no i, I mean I, there's a lot more i could talk about as well i think it's it's a really good high level um on that one and it keeps in the theme of, of what you're doing but i'm more than happy to do deeper dives on this as well and and talk about the environmental benefits and and the business benefits and and capability and cost benefits of this these sorts of technologies so like I say, I'm always happy to uh, to have a discussion if anyone wants to pick up the phone. Top so, man. Right. Well, Paul Borg. Thank you for having thank me. Thank you for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to uh, catching you up at the next one. Good man. Cheers, Paul. Take care. Thanks, Paul. Bye-bye.